Welcome to the Minnesotan Podcast. Today we have a very special guest today, Rich Cohen, who wrote a book recently released called Pee-wee's Confession of a Hockey Parent. Uh, it should be a great show today. You're going to learn a lot about a guy who built a, a career as, as a journalist and then finally as an author of 15 books. This is number 15. We'll talk about a few of his books and some of his side hustle as well, uh, as well as we'll talk a ton about his book, Peewees. Can't, can't wait to get started. Is a burning thing And it makes A fiery ring Bound By wild desire I fell into a ring of fire Well, good morning, Rich. How are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's I can't appre- I can't thank you enough for coming on and to talking about your book and telling a little bit about your story. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for calling me up. Um, well, what I'd like to do is I start about uh, asking a few questions about your early life, uh, just kind of growing up in in the north side of Chicago. Uh, what was that life like? You, you said you grew up in Lake Forest, Illinois. That's a pretty nice neighborhood, if if I recall. I've been there a few times. Well, actually, I was born, I always say Lake Forest, but I was born in Lake Forest Hospital, actually within a town called Libertyville. Okay, I know where um, that is. Yeah, and famously home of Adelaide Stevenson and Marlon Brando. Not bad. And Mike Sosha, I believe. Mike Sosha, the Dodgers catcher and manager of the uh, Angels. And, um, and then we moved to Glencoe, which is between Highland Park and Winnetka. Yeah, nice. And that man, I played hockey at all those places, suburban rinks around there. From Highland Park, Deerfield, Winnetka, well, Matt. And, um, but always, you know, in Chicago, they have a great phrase, Chicago land. Yeah. Because it's, it just sprawls. And it you're just always keeps growing, like, too. Yeah. I actually just came across a picture of myself at age like five driving a Stingray bicycle with a Bears coat on. And I'm like, because the Bears have been, the Bears were always a big part of our life. And the, the fact that Chicago teams never won anything, I just happened to be born during this massive dead spell, which I didn't realize because it was my whole life, but the Cubs hadn't won since 1905. The Blackhawks hadn't won since like 63 and the bear or yeah. And the bears hadn't won since 63 and the white Sox hadn't won like since 1919, you know, the black Sox. So, and the bulls were like this kind of weird, bad expansion team kind of. So we had, it was a real bad era, you know, for sports fans in Chicago and I really always feel like that formed our identity, which was kind of like you got to find the humor in it because if you don't find the humor in it, you're just going to be miserable all the time. Well, that's interesting. We're the same age. You were born in 1968, right? Yep. I was age 67. We graduated college at the same time. Um, it's funny. So I know exactly where you were with the, as being a Chicago fan, but the 85 Bears must have been kind of your coming out party. Well, I, you know, so I wrote a book called Monsters about the 85 Bears where I tracked all these guys down who, who I love, you know, all the guys from the Super Bowl shuffle, basically, and yeah. a bunch of other guys and the guys leading up to that. And oh, so the 85 Bears, to really understand what the 85 Bears were like for a, a Chicago sports fan, you have to know about the 84 Cubs, mm-hmm. which is in 1984, the Cubs had this great team. They won their division by like five or six games and they were one game away a couple outs away from going to the world series they had this great team and they had one of the most 
epic collapses in the history of, you know, postseason sports where they lost three games in a row. And in San Diego to the the Padres, a team owned by the guy who owned McDonald's, you know. Yep. And um, And every game, yeah, Ray Kroc. And every game was a come from behind loss. And when the Cubs lost in 84, I, I really went outside my house and I cried. And um, and I, that's the feeling like every Cubs fan had this moment where they were sort of branded by the Cubs. That was it for me, 84. And then so 85, when the Bears came along, it was like revenge on the world for the Cubs fan. I was at a pen of penicillin for the dying Cubs fan. I always told people I was I felt like what the Cubs did to me. I was like E.T. Like they zipped me up in a bag and I turned all gray, you know. Yeah. And then the uh, the Bears, it wasn't just that they won. That was a 46 defense. That was that Hall of Fame defense. And they annihilated everyone, other teams. Yeah, they, they, I, I, one of the guys I talked, became friends with through the book is this guy, Doug Plank, who gave the 46 defense its name. And he was just known as the human missile. Holy. And he used to carry smelling salts to revive himself after big hits. And um, he said that the Bears' strategy in those years was we're going to get to know your second string quarterback today. He also said that their entire, uh, his entire career now would be considered one long penalty. I was just going to say, was, how many targeting penalties would Doug Plank have uh, gotten? <laughs> he used to say, hey, listen, I never hit anybody. I just sailed over the pile. He also had this thing, this great line where he said, you know, our strategy was we're going to hit the quarterback hard 10 times. And they'd call me a penalty, say it's a late hit, but it's like when they say that the jury should disregard something. You can't unhear something and you can't unhit the quarterback. Yeah. You know, they were, but now probably he'd be fine more than he made. Those guys made very little money. I mean, compared to even their later lives outside of football. After writing that book, what was your biggest takeaway or funniest moment when, when meeting all these, these guys, these ex jocks? Well, one of the great things about the bears was, you know, my, like the great position in football is a quarterback quarterback, is the movie star oh, football, yeah. mostly. And you had one of the greatest, the, right? A greatest right, movie but stars before of that, time. the bears had terrible, boring quarterbacks. They had Sid Luckman in the 1950s, who was still around as like an old guy in front of George Hallis. And then between him, they, not only did the quarterbacks were bad, they were boring. They were, they were bland. They had Bob Avellini, Vince Evans, uh, Bobby Douglas before my time. And then McMahon showed up at the first Bears press conference with a case of beer, big thing of skull in his lip. You know, it was like a completely different era. And um, he was like a rock star. And he and he would always find ways to win. Probably his greatest game ever was in Minnesota against the Vikings on Thursday night football where he threw four plays, three touchdowns in a game that Ditka would not let him in. And you always knew after the Bears scored a touchdown, the next thing you'd see is, Ditka screaming at McMahon on the sidelines because McMahon had changed the play because the Bears defense offense was so boring. McMahon had an audible if he wanted to throw the ball. So I went to meet him in Scottsdale, Arizona. He was wearing a shirt that said, got milk. And then at the bottom, it said, got pot. (laughs) And he was, he wasn't even that old really. Cause like, you know, he's probably 50 years old, but uh, he said, I, I brought. A, I just read this Roger Con, famous Roger Con book called The Boys of Summer. Mm-hmm. My father's from Brooklyn and grew up with the Dodgers, and that book was written 25 years after the Dodgers won the World Series, and I was writing about 25 years after the Bears won the Super Bowl. So, and Roger Con had this great thing where he'd end all his interviews by playing catch with the people he interviewed. I thought I'll bring a football and I'll play catch, 
And I asked McMahon if he wanted to go outside and play catch, and he just laughed at me. He said, I can't even throw my keys. No I can't way. even lift my, my arm above, you know, my shoulder. So it's like you realize that baseball and football, the afterlife is completely different. These guys will usually start an interview by listing the surgeries they've had since they played. Uh, Doug Plank has two titanium shoulders. No way. And he said to me, yeah, he said each body comes with like a certain number of hits in it. He goes, My, mine came with 52 hits, but I took 75. You know, and, and he's one of the guys in good shape because he's very sharp and, you know, really smart guy. And obviously his mind is fine, but, you know, he took a pounding and he just played for like five years in the NFL, I think. It's funny the foundation that those, the Doug Planks and, and those guys made for what people are making today. And it doesn't seem like they're getting, you know, much back in return. Have you, did you touch on that at all with those guys? Yeah, but like everybody you talked, right? I did definitely, definitely. Look, I mean, they didn't. Gary Fensick, who is a great bear, a Chicago guy, grew up in um, Barrington. His father was a vice principal at his high school, I think, and uh, went to Yale. You know, and was the la- was co- the last player cut from the Miami Dolphins, and then basically walked on with the Bears and became not an All Pro, but I mean, not an All a Hall of Famer, but an All Pro and almost a Hall of Famer. Led the team in in interceptions for a long time. He, uh, he, at, in his last contract that he made, they wouldn't give him the money he wanted. So he said, basically, if you ever, what, well, here's what I want my contract. If you ever build a new stadium, I want four season tickets for life between the 40 yard lines. And when they rebuilt soldier field, they gave him those tickets. Those tickets are worth more than all he made combined in his NFL really? career. Yeah. That's the difference, you know, but all of them, had this first of all they loved to play football they felt like they got this great thing which was to play football and then also they felt like no matter what era you show up in in any sport really it seems like the guys after you are doing better like you got screwed compared to them you know and you could think of even michael jordan who made such an outrageous amount of money at the end of his career what would he make today you know everybody's paid so much more so yeah, the, the the a guy like Doug Plank didn't make a lot of money, but he made more than Doug Buffone, you know, who yeah. came before him, who would have made. I mean, think about like a guy like Bronco Nagurski, yeah, you know, one of the greatest. So all these guys, yeah, they made money like by being celebrities, really, and opening bars and stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so many, uh, you've written so many books, and we just kind of stumbled across one there. Uh, walk through your your training. You, you grew up in Chicago. You went to Tulane. Um, uh, we'll get to your hockey playing career in, in a little bit, but um, walk through, you, you went to Tulane. What did you learn there, and what did you want to be growing up or in this process? Well, I, I, you know, like I always liked the idea of writing. My father wrote a book. My father's not a writer, but he wrote a book that was super successful when I was a kid. And I saw that whole thing unfold. Mm. My father is like, you know, he's in a boat. It's a weird, he's like a Brooklyn street kid who wrote a book called you can negotiate anything, which is basically just his wisdom of being a wise guy on the street in Brooklyn turned into business lexicon. And it sold like over a million copies. Really? When I was a little kid. So I watched, and, and he wrote it in the basement in longhand on yellow legal pads with calligraphy pens and was turned down by 18 publishers before he got it published, you know, and then he sold it by hand by driving with a whole bunch of them in the back of, in his trunk around America, just showing up and selling the book. So 
I saw that. And that was, I think, always in my head. And, um, you know, I always like to read. I wrote for the newspaper and stuff. And but there's like a lot of other things I wanted to do. And and I think what happened is I went to Tulane. The reason I went to Tulane is uh, because and we talked about the Bears. 1985, I got or I guess it was 86. Right. Super Bowl. I got tickets to the Super Bowl. And uh, I was going to go to school like in Washington or Vermont or somewhere in the north. And this school was so much more relaxed then. And then I went down to New Orleans for the Super Bowl. I was 17 years old. You know, I drank Hurricanes at Pat O'Brien's. I met Jim McMahon. I ate oysters outside on the street. And I thought, I just want to stay here the rest of my life. So then I was able to sort of apply late and get into and go to Tulane. All very spur of the moment without a lot of thought to it. So the you Bears know, then, don't make the Super Bowl. You don't go to Tulane. No. <laughs> I never thought of that. That's wow. right. <laughs> I never really put that together, but that's true. That's oh how my. your that's how your whole life is made up. I weird the and then again another accident, which was I was always you know into fiction. I wanted to write fiction and stories and stuff, and I took a lot of creative writing classes in college. And I, I actually wanted to make movies, is what it was. Right. I wanted to be a filmmaker. And when I now and when I was growing up, I had like a I made a lot of movies with my friends and stuff, and I wanted to just be like a film director. And then um, I wanted to go to film school. And I didn't have any money. And my father laughed at the idea of film school, which he considered ridiculous because he's like super traditional and like film school. You you know, did Frank Capra go to film school? Did John Ford go to film school? If you want to make a film, you make a film, you know, you don't go to school. That was his attitude. So I started writing because that was something I could do without any money. Right. And then when I was getting out of college, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I randomly sent resumes to I read to a lot of different magazines and one of the resumes I sent to a resume to was the New Yorker which you know is like the greatest magazine in America blah 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 blah. I didn't even really know what the New Yorker was I knew that the New Yorker had published J.D. Salinger yeah and E.B. White that's what I knew okay so I went there and I got an interview which was crazy because everybody that got interviews there were all like Ivy League people with these great resumes. I didn't have any of that. I didn't have any connection, anything. I think just the fact that this kid from Tulane who was from Chicago and hadn't done anything, sent a resume, kind of piqued their interest. So I went there and I was applying for a job in the word processing pool. This doesn't exist anymore, obviously, because people right. send their, their people, writers used to call in and read their stories and the word processing people would type them out and then enter them into the system. And um, they gave me a typing test, and I didn't know how to type, okay, so at all. Oh, my god! And gosh. I still really don't. So the woman who interviewed me left the room and said, I'm going to give you this test. You gotta, we're going to see how many words you can type in three minutes or something. And then she came back, and there was like a sentence. And she said, do you know how to type at all? And I said, no. And she said, what do you think was going to happen when I gave you this test? And I said, I don't know. I, I was hoping maybe it would come to me. I've heard about stuff like that happening. And that weird little joke, she laughed at that. And she said, look, I, and she liked that. And she said, we need somebody like you around here who's basically not that smart and didn't go to one of these Ivy League schools and isn't from the Northeast. So she said, I can't hire you because you can't type. But they got me a job as a messenger. So basically, I was in the office carrying packages around the city. Now, I wasn't from New York, so that was a great way to get to learn my way around New York City, yeah. which is riding around the subway with mostly manuscripts to bring to writers' apartments sit around while they got their other manuscript ready to hand to me to bring back and get to meet all these people. And, um, and then, 
uh, also would have to sit at the reception desk when the receptionist would go out and just answer the phone. And the reception desk was right next to the New Yorker library. And so I started going in and while I was sitting there getting old issues of the New Yorker from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and just reading them. And I started discovering the New Yorker nonfiction, which I never knew about, which was to me, it was like, uh, I was amazing. I mean, I thought this is what I want to do. I want to write stuff like this. And I'm talking about writers like A.J. Liebling, Joseph Mitchell, and all these people just kind of blew me away. And and they were and Joseph Mitchell, who's this legendary guy, was still around. And I was at the desk and I got to know him. He's like this old man in a seersucker suit. And then um, one other thing happened, which is one of the editors, who was the editor of Talk of the Town, actually hosted kind of a weekend hockey game on a pond near his house in New Jersey when it was cold enough. Yeah. So they heard I played hockey, so they invited me out there. So I started riding out with a bunch of hockey playing people from the New Yorker out to New Jersey and playing hockey all day on this pond. And I got to know all these people. And then I started writing talk of the town stories. I think I wrote 20 that were rejected before the first one was accepted. And that one wasn't even because it was, I wrote it so well, it was because it was such a great idea, which is there used to, there was this play called the real live Brady bunch. Yeah. I don't know if you remember it, but basically a bunch of adult actors did the lines from the Brady bunch. And they, they were closing and moving to New York. So the perfect peg, they're moving to New York. And then um, they had their goodbye party in Chicago and they were all hanging out, drinking, dressed in costume as Cindy Brady, Bobby Brady, Mike Brady, Carol Brady. So that was, and then from there, I just kept writing more and more bigger and bigger. And I could never make the jump to real writer at the New Yorker. I was always a messenger. So I worked for this paper called the New York Observer. And then I started working at Rolling Stone. All this happened between the ages of like 21 and 24. Wow. I mean, I, I, when I saw Rolling Stone on your resume, I was like, oh, my goodness. This guy has really made quick strides. Uh, I wish we could talk more about it. Give me one Rolling Stone story, you know, your, your takeaway from working there, because it's still a publication that's, you know, a landmark well, publication. I started doing these little weird stories, like more like Talk the Town stories. I mean, some of them were great people, but like I did a, one of the first stories I did for them was called and one of the things I think they liked about me there was I was so young and I looked even younger than I was. So like one of the stories I did was about the children of rock stars. So I hung oh, out with Marlon cool. Richards, who's, yeah, that was like Marlon Richards, Keith Richards' son, Liv Tyler, who's now, you know, Liv yeah. Tyler, but Steven Tyler's daughter. She just made a video of an Aerosmith song with uh, Alicia Silverstone. So, and I was like their age, you know, so I could just hang out with them. And then, Ultimately, all that led to sort of my big break at Rolling Stone, which is Jan Wenner, the owner of Rolling Stone, basically asked me if I wanted to go hang out and watch the Rolling Stones uh, rehearse in Canada, in Toronto, suburb of Toronto, for their first, uh, to go on tour. You know, they were which like... Which tour was that? 90... It was Bridges to Babylon. Okay. I think it was Bridges to Babylon. All right. And, um, and that was like incredible because... You know, in the middle of the night, I fly, they fly, I fly into Toronto and drive out to this little town, go into an elementary school in the middle of the summer, which is like schools in the summer always freak me out, you know, try to avoid them in the summer. <laughs> and it was just like my elementary school, you know, and you go in, but you walk in and the first thing you hear is like that lick from brown sugar. Yeah. And you follow it down and in the, in the gym, the, you know, where you play dodgeball, the exact same gym I grew up with is Charlie Watts, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, um, you know, and uh, Ron Wood. Can't leave Ron Wood out. Right. You know, playing 
and I just would sat there five, six hours, just me watching them go through all of their songs and figuring out what they wanted to play on the tour. And then ultimately I went out on the tour with them. So that was probably a high point in my life, not just at Rolling Stone. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We'll get to the Martin Scorsese thing here as well. Uh, you, you wrote and were co-creator of a show on HBO called Vinyl. Walk through what that is all about. Cause I just well, saw that your bio and so my jaw dropped when I saw it. Well, the first book I published, so I wanted to write a book. I knew I wanted to write a book, but like most of the stories I was writing were other people's ideas, but I like my own ideas, you know? Right. And, um, I knew I wanted to write a book and I really always into the Godfather. I mean, my father raised us like the Godfather was like the Bible. You know, <laughs> he used to say, well, think of what Sonny did in this situation. Or now, now don't act like Michael. Uh, in this situation, Michael, you know, Fredo, don't be like, you know, so that was like, no one ever wanted to be Fredo, right? No. <laughs> so that was like, uh, I was always into those stories. And then um, I, I, I read this book. I, I just, my father grew up telling us stories about his neighborhood. He grew up in Bensonhurst, right, Brooklyn. And a lot of those mobsters lived in Bensonhurst and still do. Okay. And he, and a lot of the stories he told us were about Jewish gangsters. Now that's just because he lived in a neighborhood that was like 50% Jewish. That's right. why that too was there. So, um, the, uh, the, the there were stories always Jews in mob movies, mob books, but they're usually like the Jewish stereotype, which is yeah. they're like the brain or the numbers guy. For Dutch Schultz, it's Abadaba Berman who can do all the math in his head, and in The Godfather, it's uh, Hyman Roth who's this little old guy, you know, down in Florida who is just a strategist. But the guys in my dad's neighborhood were the tough guys. They were the torpedoes they call them on the street, and they were the soldiers. And, uh, you know, of these different crime families and, and they had been Jewish. And I was always fascinated by these stories. And so I decided I wanted to write a book about them just because it could be like a mob book because I love mob stories with a slightly different twist to it because it would be these Jewish gangsters in a role you maybe more associate with guys like Luca Brazzi, you right. know, from The Godfather. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and th th those stories had been well known by people of my grandparents' generation because they were in the newspaper. You know, um, but by the time you got to my age, nobody even knew those guys existed. So uh, this is a really long way to answer your question. So the point is that book came out. It was called Tough Jews, which, you know, turned out to be a very good title. And yeah. um, and somebody gave it to Scorsese. In a manuscript form, probably my agent, I don't know. Yeah. And Scorsese loved it and gave me a really great blurb for it. Ultimately, I didn't I mean, Martin Scorsese is like one of my heroes and I didn't know him at all. Um, but he read this book and then it just so happened that him and Mick Jagger wanted to make a movie together about record executives. Like it was supposed to be like casino in the casino right. in the record business. Yeah. So um, they were talking, looking for different writers. And I just it, I just hung out and spent the summer on the road with the Rolling Stones. I got to be friendly with Mick Jagger. I knew all his people. He trusted me. He liked what I'd written. And then in the meantime, I just written about the Jewish gangsters. And a lot of it was about the business of the mob and how the modern mob turned it into a business, which is similar to what the music guys did. They turned kind of a hobby into a business right? and, or maybe hobby's not the right word. So I went in and I interviewed with them. I mean, I, I met them and I hung out with them and which was insane and whatever. And, uh, and I got hired to do this thing. And so the first thing was to write this is like a long time ago, this script, which we worked on for many years and it was going to be a big, long movie. But then 
that the money for that kind of movie kind of disappeared at a certain point. Yeah. And the, the decision was it'd be better to make it into a TV show. So what I wrote basically became like the pilot. And then, and then, yeah, which is, you know, just like I said, like casino in the music business, but in the 1970s, which is like casino. I mean, like Goodfellas is in the seventies, a lot of it. I mean, you have some major, major accomplishments, but I would have to, I would have to put Martin Scorsese liking your work near the top, isn't it? Yeah. Except the funny thing is like, I was so influenced by Goodfellas. Right. I mean, I remember coming out of that movie you remember you come out of a movie and you feel like you're just juiced you're so excited i I mean something about it just and i just came out of the movie thinking i was so happy after i saw that movie (laughs) and it had such a big influence on me the way it's written which was written by nick pelleggi who i got to know later that i think it had a big influence on my writing at that time so the funny thing is i wrote tough jews with that voice in my head and then he really liked it which is it was like good, very influenced by Goodfellas. One of my favorite. Well, there's a lot of great scenes from that movie. But one of my favorite scenes I, I use it today in my vernacular is uh, Ray Liotta's. You know, he being chased by the cops with a helicopter over him. He's doing all this gangster stuff, and he's calling his wife at the home, making sure she stirs the sauce. Yeah, <laughs> but there's also the greatest line of voiceover, which is, and and which is like the deadpan to what's going on, which is he just says. This was the bad time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, because that's everybody has it. I always think that this, like in the storytelling, like there's a point in the story where it's the bad time, it's the good time, and it's the bad time, you know? Yeah. And that's something, a little stupid thing that Scorsese actually taught me when writing the scripts is when you have the, because I was using voiceover, which we later got rid of, if you have the voiceover, the voiceover has to come after the action, not before it. Correct. Correct. It's the best. I, you know, yeah, that is the best. Well, we, we could ch- chat forever about your career. It's fascinating. Check them out. There's like 15 books there. They range all over the place. Rolling Stones, Tough Jews, The Avengers. It's an unbelievable story. I, I'm, I'm excited just to, to pick up a couple of your books and, and read more and, and get to know you. I'm looking forward to it. But we got to get to this uh, book that you wrote about peewee hockey. How did you get there? How, what, what, how, did, it, how did it unfold? Well, my son... Uh... I had an older son who played and he was, you know, just not that into it. And he was playing travel hockey and we were in this weird thing where I was coaching. I, I played hockey when I was a kid and it was like, I knew he didn't like it, but he, but he was pretending to like it for me. And I knew he was pretending, but I pretended to believe him for him. And at a certain point it was like, we're living a lie here, man. And it's okay to live a lie when you're like around the house, when you have to travel all over the Northeast for a lie. So finally, that just like died and he stopped playing, I don't know, after squirts or something. And then uh, my younger son, just his friends started playing and he started playing and I just stayed out of it. And when he wanted equipment, I'm like, go get your brother's old equipment in the garage. I'm not, I, I, cause I kind of like acted like a jerk. I felt right. first time and I wasn't a good coach. It just turns out I'm not a good coach. I mean, like I can't really, I, I get frustrated and so <laughs> anyway, just went to the rink to pick him up one day and he got, he's really good. And I had nothing, I had nothing to do with it, you know? And then I kind of got into it and then he started like moving up and getting better and better. And the games got really exciting. And what's, what's kind of interesting about hockey uh, is that even when you're, they're kids, the games are, once there's squirts or something, the games are exciting. Yeah. You can watch a good squirt game and it's exciting. Like if you watch kids playing baseball, it's not baseball. I don't know what it is. 
it's they're going to be it's going to be baseball, but it's not baseball yet. Football is not like football. Basketball is not like basketball. Hockey is hockey is hockey, man. And and I, and it, and of course, being back to all those kind of ranks I hadn't been in since I was a kid. And then like I got started to get really, really into it. And then like when he would score. I'd be like, well, I can't believe how happy this is making me. This is sick. You know, I'm like him scoring a goal. It's like the Bears winning this fucking, sorry, Bears winning the Super Bowl. You know, I'm like, this is like rooting for the Bears, except you're everything. It was like I got so into it. And then he started, you know, moving through and I just became completely absorbed. And and like all the stuff that parents aren't supposed to do, like care too much, put pressure on their kids, get upset, start counting minutes for shift times, yelling at the coach. I did everything. Well, I, I want everything. I want to back up just a half a step here because I want to. <laughs> I want to tie your own personal experience back to parent experience. What was your experience playing hockey as a kid in Chicago, and what was your experience with your parents when you were playing hockey in Chicago? And then well, to tie was, that back to what you, where you are today. Okay, so we grew up in this town called Libertyville, and um, my brother, who's five years older than me, he just started playing hockey. I don't know why. I think other kids were playing it. We played at a place, which I think still exists, called the Deerfield Bubble, which was off the highway in Deerfield, Illinois. It was the coldest rink I've ever been in, which was a huge, huge home ice advantage. Nobody wanted to play us, you know? Yeah. And um, I just started, and it was a much more laid back atmosphere than now. Like in that the parents were not involved, as far as I remember. They, and I would go with my brother to the rink. My, it was the winter. There was nothing else to do. So my mom or dad would drop my brother off and drop me off to watch. And my brother taught me to skate. And when I was able to skate, there'd be games where they were short players and I would jump in and be playing with much older kids and just play hockey all day. And I played in Deerfield for many years. And then we moved later and I played for, in Winnetka. And, um, and the thing about my parents was my dad did grew up in Brooklyn. He played basketball was his sport right. he was a basketball coach and he's like a coach that's his personality yeah i mean that's his job almost as a profession is he coaches businesses about how to make deals and stuff so um and i did not want to play basketball because he is not only he's a coach he's kind of a pain in the ass of a coach like <laughs> he, he'll take over he'll tell you what to do he has arcane strategies he comes up with crazy strategies and and he gets pissed off at you and he screams at you and everything but when it came to hockey, he didn't know what was going on. So he didn't he, he hardly even paid attention to us playing hockey. It just wasn't on his radar. So it was a great sport for me and my brother because my father couldn't be involved. I always say my father only came to two of my hockey games, and he only ever said one thing once, which was when I was laid out on the ice, he yelled from the stands, you're not hurt. <laughs> That's the only thing he ever said. Oh. And that's basically his philosophy about everything. So – um, yeah, so my hockey career was basically my own thing. And even later, like at some point I had to stop playing for a while because my mom wouldn't drive me anymore because she hated to drive in the snow. So I had to like basically get a driver's license. There was like, you know, to, to sort of drive myself. So that was my career. But then when I went back with my son, it's completely just, different. It's completely what you different. You just described the rinks aren't that cold anymore. Parents. Yeah. Both parents are there and they're pre-gaming in the parking lot. I mean, just start off. I'm just going to turn the, turn it over to you at this point because you're doing a great job of describing it. 
how it is now? Yeah, it's just, it's insane. Well, uh, I was shocked when I first, I understand like when kids need help tying their skates, okay? But through a certain point, I was shocked when, I, when, my, when my older son, my older son was little because I was coaching. All these parents were in the locker room all the time. Right. And they were all telling their kid what to do. And the idea of it, I was like, this isn't a team. This is like 15 separate teams. It's almost like tennis. This is like become an individual sport. So other kids seem like an obstacle to your kid because the other kids taking minutes away, the puck away, blah, 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 blah. It was just because the parents were so incredibly involved. And then at a certain age, the parents are not involved right. because the coaches won't allow them in the locker room and that blah, blah. But, but the basic template was kind of set in that there is the idea that you have to, that you have to sublimate your own, skill even your own talent you the things you can do you're not going to do them for the good of the team you know correct right so but by the way it's, it's interesting because as a writer it's the same thing which is there's things that you don't do in a story because they'll mess up the story but when you're young you show off and you try to do them all yeah you, you know do. yeah um, so so it's interesting that whole thing changed and and it became like what amazed me, what I thought thought was so funny is every time I'd go into the rink, all the parents were in a circle facing in. I call it the holy hockey circle. Yeah. You know, and if you're not inside the circle, you feel like you're excluded and you feel like and this was the big, huge realization to me. And it it was that. I always thought, you know, people say, oh, he's living through his kids, you know, he's living through his own hockey career. He wasn't that good. So he's living through, blah, 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 blah. And I just accepted that. And then when I got in, there, I realized that's not really what's going on. It's not that people want their kids to be great because they weren't. It's that when your kid is great, you get treated better. Now you have more, you're getting like status out of your kid's ability. I read that because I read a lot of the book I read for two hours last night, which was probably like four pages. And I got to that point in your book and I was fascinated by the, uh, the, the, the status or the actual, it's almost like a monetary certain thing. You know what I mean? Like that, that yeah. you get from that walk through that. I think it's a fascinating observation. Well, you know, the, 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 the parents on the top we have. So when I was a kid, we had two teams, a double A team and an A team. And basically mostly it was age. Cause it was like the younger right. kids were on the A team. And then the second year on the double A team, there's an occasional exceptional kid. He might play up. Yep. And a kid who's still developing might play down. But for the most part, you're with the same kids every year if you stay with it. And then there's house league when we played. And the house league was really good. And some of the best players played in the house league simply because their parents couldn't travel or didn't have the money. Correct. Okay, they didn't want to spend the money. That's it. And um, But now in our, in our organization, there's four teams, which is nuts. And they all have these letters. And the letters, you know, identify you. And they're not by age. They're by this this almost combine you know the nfl combine yes your story of the tryouts was so well written i loved it i was like oh he's uh, got me hooked keep going but i wrote a story two years ago right at the same time for harper's about the nfl combine where i went to the combine and um it was just the same you know which is they they end up you end up it's like the malcolm gladwell thing which is Look, you can't really tell how good someone's going to be until they actually play for a while. And it's just the truth. And so forgetting all their individual skills or abilities, that's why a guy like 
Doug Plank is dra- drafted in the 12th round and becomes one of the best bears ever because he doesn't register on any of the scales they have. And that's why Gary Fensick is cut by the Dolphins and becomes almost a Hall of Fame. We all see it every year in every sport. Right. So um, it, it becomes like that. So basically they know what these coaches or the outside evaluators who come in to judge these kids are looking for certain skills. So it's like kids, you know, with SAT prep, they practice just for the test. Right. You know, and then you find out later, oh, they can make the most beautiful pivot in the world. But after two periods, the kid doesn't want to play anymore. He's bored. He doesn't like hockey. If you don't like it, you're not going to be any good at it. You know, just like stuff like that. So you mentioned in the book that which I thought was fascinating. I don't think I've ever seen it in print. And you said um, the tryout process uh, they they bring the outside evaluators. They've picked the team, but they bring the outside evaluators in almost as a facade. So it's they use them as their their crutch for when the teams were actually picked. Absolutely. I mean, it's plausible deniability. So when a parent gets all pissed off, they could say, "Hey, it wasn't me. It was objective. It's a fact. You know, it was the outside evaluator." I always felt like in the you know the Herb Brooks the the movie Miracle. Right. When and I guess this is really what happened, which is all these guys show up and the, it turns out the guy already has his team. <laughs> he had his trainer. He had everybody all picked. Yeah. Yeah. He already had the kids picked and it wasn't about who was good and who was bad. I mean, there were players that didn't make the team that were better than the players that did. It wasn't about that. It was about he had his team. And that's that's how it is in these programs. They mostly have the team. So you start to realize as a parent that your kids, and it's the same way my older son, the one who stopped playing hockey, is now applying for college. You, it looks like there's 15 spots on this team, but there's really probably two or three. Correct. You know, that the team's already been filled before you even get there. And it's really hard. You put your expectations on your kid, and you make it seem like if you do this, that, that, you can make the team. But really, it's impossible to make the team. You know, I mean, there's no there's no place on the team. You, you, so. You talked about that, that the, the holy circle or whatever, and, and the word I was trying to spit out was currency. There's almost currency with the ability of your son or daughter playing. Walk through that a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, it's just, it's like being the son of a, of a star. It gives you like a second life yeah. right now, and it makes you look like you know what you're doing and you're a good parent. And you have some, And it just, you're just treated better. I mean, I have it in the book. There's a parent I said was basically in tears because her kid didn't make the top team and it wasn't about what's going to happen to the kid it's like those are my best friends and now they're not gonna I'm not gonna hang out with them anymore I'm not gonna be with them and I've seen it you know with my own with my own older kid he switched teams and that's it all those relationships just disappear so when your kid does well you get treated better like you did something you know (laughs) right and when your kid yeah and you get uh, it's and it's and and the funny thing about it is at the level of hockey that I'm talking about for my kid, he's a good hockey player. He's not a great hockey player. He's not going to play in division one college. He's probably not going to play in division three college. You know, he's going to, so all the currents, but he's very good at his level, right. which is a very good level, which is double a hockey. Um, uh, you know, all the currency that I accrue as a very proud hockey father of a kid who scores a lot of goals is going to become, is just going to disappear when he graduates from high school, yeah, you know, I mean, and you see it. And by the way, when you have, you realize as a parent, it goes so it really, it's like a cliche, but it goes so fast there. What you're giving them is a great experience, a great time. 
I really do think kids who play on play team sports learn to, to they become better people. I, I mean, I hate to say it, but they do because they learn about sharing and they learn about, you know, they develop empathy and they, they become resilient. All these things that hockey can give you that you don't even really get in some of the other sports because they're not really a team sport in the same way. Like baseball is kind of like an individual sport and a team sport put together. Correct. Like partly golf and partly something. Else. Yeah. 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 So, so and hockey is unique in that way. And, and that's what you're giving them and, and, and all that stuff. But the, the currency part of it, is just going to be gone. My my favorite part so far, uh, digging through your book, and I, and I want to set this up a little bit. Um, the way you describe it, first of all, you changed all the names and all the associations, right? They're all fictional names to protect. I changed all the names and I changed the places and the dates, and I try to muddy it up. Like I don't. Ideally, the people that stand behind these characters in the book won't even recognize themselves and or would think they do and they're wrong, right. you know? So, and it got to the point at the end, after I changed everything that I started to forget who was who, because you forget how important a name is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 It's neat that you did that because then you could make it about the, the, the effect of the game and the, whatever it isn't, about, it isn't super personal. Like this guy was no. a jackass and this guy was cool. And by the way, one of the little things I did that nobody knows is a lot of the names I used were names of kids I grew up with and played hockey with. Cool. Some of them. That's very cool. And That's I did that because cool. they always say they read my books, but I don't believe <laughs> you'll find out, right? Exactly. You'll find out. <laughs> um, well, the reason I want to I want to kind of set this up is the the association that you describe that your son plays in that you were involved in is much like, and I'm going to use this as a Minnesota for a Minnesota, more like a White Bear Lake, uh, Bloomington. Um, when I'm when I'm just what the suburbs I'm describing here, they aren't really really wealthy, but they're not really, uh, but they're big time into hockey. Uh, what I mean, White Bear Lake has uh, in in our community based system they'll have a double a team a single a team uh two b1 teams and some c teams they'll have five six seven teams and there'll be people that live on white bear lake which is a very nice place to live and then there'll be plumbers and there'll be electricians and there'll be a, a huge variety of life and what you described in the book is uh hockey is much like america today and i was like wow that's a great analogy i'd love to talk about that more yeah, well, we, I always feel like that what you described is, is like kind of like where I live. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place to live. And it's got this, it, you can live there and it's not that expensive. And there's this big mix of professions, big mix of people. It's surrounded by much wealthier towns and much poor and much less wealthy towns. Right. People, so people from the wealthier towns come to play in this system and people from the less wealthy towns. So you get this mix of, you know, like people, you don't know what, people that are very rich and are just living off their income. And then people that are, you know, working in uh, contractors, construction stuff. It's just got this huge, you know, some guys, cops and whatever it is. You get this big disparity or, you know, of, of income. So you get this mix. You get all these kids together. And, um, of course, all that, none of that's known to the kids. And and none of that's known most of the time to the parents either. It's just everybody's at the rank. So, and, but uh, we've got we're compete. I always feel like we're at a big disadvantage a little bit because when we play the much wealthier towns, they beat us because they have better coaching, more ice time, Mark Messier setting up their hockey system, you know, right. Mark Messier coaching in Greenwich. And, um, and then when we play the, the, the sort of uh, poorer towns, less, less wealthy towns, 
they're like tougher and they beat us because they're they beat up on us you know you don't win so, at all right yeah well there have been periods where we didn't win at all but the weird thing is like the high school team here it's really 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 good for what it is a public high school team and um so i think that something ha- clicks like a little bit later they they do become because they, they, they compete at the higher levels, but at the younger levels, we our team is at a big disadvantage, I feel like. So when you wrote in the book, you said you may, maybe had a guy in your team, uh, a dad on the, of a kid who had a Canary uh, Lamborghini, and then you have, you know, a, a plumber or whatever. You know, whatever, someone who's in the trades. Uh, I, but but it, I think the way you talk about it, there's almost like a harmony between these people despite having nothing in common. The thing they have in yeah. common is hockey. And I think you could uh, – America could literally, after this past couple of weeks, could really follow some lessons of hockey. Yeah. Well, because it it doesn't matter. It's, it's funny. I had this like – I was just one day sitting outside waiting, talking on the phone or something, and I started looking around the parking lot. I'm like, this is a crazy parking lot. This parking lot doesn't make any sense, you know? Right. Because you have these really expensive cars and then you have like a lot of trucks and it's just this giant mix and all. And that is hockey and that's a team and nobody really cares because everybody's so focused on their kids and the success of the team and the success on the ice is really all that matters. And it's not like they don't care about who's rich, who's poor, who's divorced, who's married. It's like they don't even know about it. And the hockey parents form a very tight community. One of the things that made me sad when my older son started getting really into it was you feel so close to these people. I mean, you're staying with them in hotels, at tournaments, you're drinking with them, you're hanging out with them early in the morning. I mean, it's like you're back in college, like in a fraternity. Yeah. I mean, that's what it feels like. And then suddenly you get to March, April, and the season's about to end. And the tryouts are coming because when I, again, when I played, as I remember it, my memory could be faulty. We had tryouts in the fall. That's the way it is and, in Minnesota. And it, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting take because they have the tryouts in the spring, mostly because they want to collect the money. They want to get the down payment. Exactly. And they want, they don't want kids to go try. I think try out someplace else. Right. Yeah. They try to move the tryouts before so they could lock you in. So you don't have any options because kids try out. Like we didn't choose for out for four or five different programs. Right. So everybody, you know, you get, you try out and you get 24 hours to decide. And hopefully those 24 hours end before you find out from another team and then you have an option. Right. right. So, yeah. So basically, but the, uh, uh, there's a couple bad effects from that, or I think one is the tryouts, people at the end of the postseason, people's minds are already on the tryouts. And the parents, some of them, already start to look at the other kids less as the teammates of their children than as the competition of their children. And the team starts to fall apart and it just dissolves. Really? And that's just, I mean, that's my feeling. It's just kind of made me kind of sad when I realized that that's what happens at the end. And then, and then I find I'm acting the same way. I mean, I'm doing, I, I'm also focusing on the tryouts and what teams are going to be on and who's going to be left behind. It's not even who's going to make it, who's going to be left behind. And that's like a big thing of modern America too, which is the fear of being left behind, you know? Of everything's this this gruesome cut, and you either make it or you're left behind. Yeah, I was, you know, and it, yeah, I, I, that's kind of depressing. It is uh, funny. I, I can I can put an exclamation point on that. I was uh, I had this. I run a camp here with the University of Minnesota, and a kid from Michigan. I was asking him about growing up in a in a in an elite AAA environment. Uh, the, 
as opposed to what we do here in Minnesota. And he goes, yeah, I'll never forget it. And this team was good. I mean, it's a legendary team. They were undefeated. They beat everybody. Uh, would have been national championship PWAA team. They won Quebec. And he goes, yeah, I'll never forget. We were playing our last game together. It's the state final. We're playing Little Caesars. He was playing for Honey Baked. And a kid whispers to me in line during the national anthem. He goes, are you trying out for Little Caesars next year? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what's exactly. wrong with that system, right? Right. We understand it. It's like you don't want to be hu- – a big part of it is you don't want to be humiliated, man. And you don't want your friends to move on and you're not with them. And, and it's so much – I honestly – I could be remembering my own childhood to do like rose-colored glasses, but I don't remember ever thinking where do I fit on this team? Am I at the top? Am I in the middle? You know – and what's going to happen next year. None of that was, it was all hockey. That's true. And, and then the other thing that, ha- that that's bad about that system is stuff happens over the summer. Kids grow five inches over the summer. Right. You know, yeah. so the spring for a kid the, the, from spring to fall, that's a big, that's a big period of time. Especially that sixth, seventh, eighth grade spot, you know, or they're, yeah. they're just like you said, they grow so much. I, I'd yeah. like to talk about your experience, and it's it's in the book. I want to I want to draw a little bit out, out of you as well. Um, your experience as a dad, and and I, I watched your interview on CBS Good Morning, and you, you said, yeah, even after I write write the book, I still get. Uh, caught into the the trap i call it the mask like i go into the rink i'm watching my son or daughter play i put this mask goes on it's like well who is that person it's just this real ugly mask walk let me tell me about your mask and what it looks like uh even after writing a book it's like as if there's a part of your separate undiscovered part of your brain that's like the hockey lobe or something yeah and you like like you don't even know that it's there so you start, I'm like a very reasonable person, man. I'm like very calm. I'm laid back. People like to hang out with me. I don't lose my temper. I don't really get mad about stuff very much. Um, and then like I go into the hockey rink, I'm all cool. And then as soon as the game starts, it's like, you call it the mask. I feel like my blood pressure changes, my brain changes, my thinking changes. And I became, and I, and I get kind of crazy and I can feel, and I know that if it's happening to me, it's happening to 80% because I'm exactly like everybody else. That's my whole writing career is based on it. If I feel it, everyone else is feeling it too. I'm not a unique person in any way. You know, right, right. I'm typical. I'm a typical 52 year old American man, I guess. So right. I, I, I am watching like my, and what I, what I, what he asked on the show was, well, is it because you wrote this book, you know, because I always say people that write self-help books, they write them because they're the ones that, Need most need self help. Yeah. <laughs> so he's asked me if I sort of felt like I had gotten a handle on my emotions regarding my son's hockey career and hockey in general by writing this book. And I thought I did. But then I went back to watching this play and it's exactly the same. Didn't do anything. Just described it. That I can't, it's something I'm not in control of. You know, and I came across different parents dealing with it in different ways. You know, that's all in the book. Like one guy I know just, he keeps, amazingly detailed statistics on every kid out there really? and he does it like a like an like a crazy old cubs fan doing the box score when i was yep. a kid because that's something to keep him busy so he doesn't lose his shit you know <laughs> and like people drink and people take xanax before the game and it's just i don't know what it is it's so uh intense um for the team and for your kid and everything 
that you can prepare yourself in any way, but unless you're like a Buddhist or something, a stoic, it just turns you into a different person. And you just got to learn little tricks to control yourself. And um, I always felt like there's a writer I loved growing up called, I still love him, Walker Percy, who had this whole thing about how it's impossible to see the Grand Canyon because you're only ever seeing your, your expectations like what you thought you'd see, or you're seeing it how you think it looks to other people. And I always say that about your kid playing hockey. You can't see your own kid playing hockey. This is the argument I always had with the parent coaches. Yeah, I know you think you're playing your kid the most because you think your kid is the best. And I know you're not lying. I know you believe that. But you can't. no one can really judge their own kid. It's impossible. It cannot be done. And everybody, I would say there's two kinds of parents. Yeah, you, the kind you said that this. Sees, it's yeah. great. It's great. Keep going, sir. I only, love this part. Only the, oh, yeah, don't, doesn't see, only the great things your kid did, nothing else, and only critical, only the only how their kid stinks. Everybody thinks your kid's the best or thinks your kid stinks. Nobody thinks that their kid's probably just an average hockey player, which 95% of them are. You know, uh, so it's, so, so it always, I found like if you, the best moments for me is when I'd walk out of the parking lot and I'd come back and I'd see somebody making a great play and then realize it's my kid. Yeah, that, you know? that, that's great. <laughs> uh, it's fascinating. We just talked, we've talked a lot about the parking lot. We talked about the game. We talked the after game. It's almost, and I was, that's why I call it the mask is I'm a completely normal person uh, before the puck <laughs> drops, right? The puck drops, uh, this mask comes on. And then when the game's over, win, lose, you know, running time, championship game, whatever. Once the game is over, the mask comes off and I become that sort of person. During the 60 minutes of the game or whatever the length of the game, I just become unglued. And you mentioned Xanax. Do do actually people, parents, take a pill before a game? Definitely. No way. I mean, it's funny because you just mentioned the mask and it's like I could see like sometimes when you're like at one of these tournaments and you're talking to another parent, you know, and they're totally relaxed because their kid's not playing or maybe play two hours later or something. Yes. Um, and they're just, you're having casual conversation and you're aware that your kid's out there and they're now doing warmups and you hear like, you know, the whistle, you hear the horn or whatever, and you're, you can't figure out how to get out of this conversation, but you got to, cause the game started. And you know, the other parent doesn't care that the game started. And it's like, I almost feel like just punching this guy in the stomach, punch him in the face and running into the ring. <laughs> You know, just get away from me. The game has started. Don't you understand? <laughs> They're picking up the pucks right now, okay? We're at eight seconds from puck drop. I have to go. And also, like, the different places, like, you know, like, parents have their places that they want to sit. Like, I know a guy that will only stand. He only stands in the corner because he says that's where he can see the whole ice. Other people who just are swearing to themselves the whole game about stuff their kid's doing wrong, so they don't want anyone else around. They have to watch alone. That's They'd me. Like group- that was me. I yeah. couldn't do it. I just, I just would grumble, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want anyone to depress anybody, and I don't want my son or daughter to do well. I just didn't want anyone to hear some of the things we're probably I was thinking, and they're not necessarily even verbalizing, but they just don't want to be around anyone. That's the great. Guy. How about the group of dads? You know, the ones that that go to, to each end between periods. Does that yeah. something that happen on the East Coast as well? Oh, well, the funniest is the goalie's dads because they always stand right behind the goalie. Now, if I if I was a goalie, that would drive me nuts. My dad standing right behind me, you I'm know? A, I'm going to one-up you on that. How about the goalie dad who puts the the GoPro behind the net? Like, yeah, we're going uh, to review this after, son, you know, how, how you one, let that one, one time, in. I don't know if GoPro, GoPros don't have sound, right? No. 
I don't okay, because one maybe. time I was sitting there with another dad and we were just trashing everything, you know? <laughs> and the goalie dad comes up and he's removing the GoPro. We realize there's been a camera right above us. And we I look at each other like, oh, sound. God. <laughs> it just, okay. To me, it's just so like it's not enough pressure stopping a puck and staying on your feet and doing all the things that a goalie has to do, and then dad's putting the GoPro up there to let's uh, so we can review it later. You know, come on, yeah, that's but oh. it's, uh, we do, they do that, but it's because of that that I have footage of all the games because then he'd send it to all the parents, right? You know, right, right. I know, and I know. um, so uh, we had a really funny thing. I think it, yeah, it's in the book where. My son got a goal, and this is at a tournament, and this woman came storming up to us afterwards and said, did you take credit for my son's goal? Oh, geez. Here we go. And he's like, what the? You know, we're like both sitting there, and it's, what credit? You know, and then we got the film, and he had scored. It was, it was like very weird. It's like a weird thing, you know? So, but that's the currency aspect. It's like he stole money from the kid or something. Yeah. Don't get me started on stats. We run (laughs) – how we make our real currency here at Youth Hockey Hub is some sponsorship, but it's mostly putting on uh, live events at at arenas. So if you – and we track stats. So you can only imagine uh, what can happen if if an assist isn't credited properly by the referee or a goal isn't – you know, we're just writing down what the referee says. Oh, right, it creates a ton of strife uh, in the rink. Sometimes those stats can drive parents crazy. Uh, yeah, no, that was when I got like a little glimpse of it. And um, I mean, I'm the somebody at the rink itself. I'm the I tend to move around a lot because it's like as if I think if I see it from a different perspective, it'll be different. Or are you looking for? You know? I'm I'm kind of a I'm looking for the luck, lucky spot guy. That was me. I'm like, yeah, oh, this, yeah. this spot's lucky. I want to make sure I stay in this spot. You know, don't take my Things- spot. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you wrote this book. How long did it take you to write the book? Weeks, months, uh, years? Months. Okay. Maybe and a year altogether. A, a year. And is that a full-time year or just kind of on and off amongst other uh Well, I, have, side I write a lot of magazine stories and stuff, so I'm going to have to keep doing that to make a keep make a my buck. sanity and make a living. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um it's funny because a bunch of years ago, I wrote a story about, uh, I forget her name, a big celebrity. And I'm not one of you, I probably shouldn't even say her name if you can remember, not the smartest celebrity. And I was, I wrote this book with Jerry Weintraub, who's a movie producer, who's the greatest guy in the whole world. And I was sitting with, I, he lived in LA, so I was sitting with him just to visit him because I was out there. And his wife said, Why are you writing this story about this person? And Jerry goes, He's getting paid. Yeah. Because he's getting paid, you know? <laughs> So you got sometimes you got to get paid. So um, yeah, and then and you know hockey's like good as far as a book because it's got a natural, you know, narrative. It's got the season. Yeah. And I, and to me, like it's very much like the experience of a hockey season is the experience of the changing of weather, and that's what I wanted to base the book around. That you know you kind of start at the end of the summer and you end at the beginning of the next summer. It's such a long season. So a lot of your books have characters in them you know like the the uh, in your book the avengers all these have little characters in them is it strange to think when you write uh, a book uh where you're part of the character no i feel like i've always written stuff that's super autobiographical right. in one way or another you know it's always like the thing is like they don't seem to go together but they do because they're all kind of my story i yeah. feel like so 
like Tough Jews was a gangster story, but it, there's a lot in it about my father and his right. friends growing up. And, um, and about, you know, so it's kind of like, and it's my father's stories. And the Avengers was about a group of partisans during the second world war. And one of them was a relative of mine. And that story I told because this was an amazing story and this was a relative and she wasn't going to live forever, you know? And it's like, if you want to get, hear the story, you got to hear it now. And then I wrote a book called Lake Effect about my friends and I growing up. <clears throat> so, and there's, a, there's stuff about playing hockey in that book too. So it's always part of it. It's just a big part of who I am. And the, and I sort of think, what's the part of my life right now that's giving me the most pleasure and the most misery, both? And it was hockey, man. It was youth, my son's youth hockey. And I thought, this is such great material. And it's so much about America now and how people live and how people compete and everything that's good and everything that's not good about what's going on in the country right now is in the ring. Yeah, it is. Um, if you had one le- like life lesson, not necessarily life lesson, but if you could change one or two things about hockey, uh, how it's uh, how how players are developed, uh, how it's how it's run, um, what would be the if you were if you were the president of USA Hockey, uh, what would you do? What, how would you change it? You know, if you'd asked me two years ago, I had a whole like list in my head. <laughs> but one is, I would try to keep teams together. Yeah. You know, I would try to get kids, you know, like the, their ability level development where everybody is at a certain moment is a snapshot. The, if you've watched kids, you realize that they develop skills all of a sudden, you know, they hit a wall, they can't do something and then they can. And the idea of sort of judging them at one moment in time and putting them on these teams that, w- that they have no you know, relationship with, no experience with, I would try to keep. You know, I'd, I'd like the kids to have new coaches every year or two. You got to change coaches. It's another problem we had. And the same kids. As it goes now, it's like different kids, the same coaches. I would flip that. And I would try to have, you know, these kids play together two, three, four years and keep them together to the extent that it's possible. Right. As teams. That's, that's one big thing that I would change. And also, like, around here, this is – we Minnesota, I know, is the, the capital of – hockey in america right, right? i always right. thought of it that way i grew up in illinois and yep. minnesota high school hockey is the best and everything and so i'm sure this is even the, the case more there around where i live there's a when i was growing up one of the reasons we played travel hockey is there just weren't that many kids playing hockey and there weren't that many rinks right so we had to travel to get to other rinks where kids could play that we could that were at our level but now right around where i live there's about eight different rinks and each one has a good hockey program and I would try to have teams, instead of traveling all over for regular games, tournaments are, are I, the Quebec tournament, all that, yes. But for regular games, I'd make it more like the NFL North, man. Like, make it more that you play the teams around you more times and develop rivalries and stuff, you know. I just think that'd be cool. And it would, and it would because you spend so much time traveling when you could be, they could be playing. You know what I mean? Uh you just described what we do here in Minnesota. And and, yeah. we, and there are people who want to do what you're doing, traveling all over the place to in, in, in a chaotic format when you can just kind of play your neighbors over and over and, and get no, a good we game. Play, that's what you should do. We play drive seven hours to play a game. Yeah. Uh, I, a friend of mine who moved from Philadelphia uh, to here and, and where they were playing and – 
kid, he actually, the, the, the kid, their kid actually plays at Ohio State this year, a real good hockey player, came here, and they moved to Eden Prairie, which is a southwest suburb, and they played uh, Waconia, which is probably 25 minutes away, 30-minute drive away. But it's a, long, it's a lot of miles. And she goes, yeah, I'll never forget, our first league game was against Waconia, and all the parents complaining that they had to go all the way out to Laconia <laughs> for a game. <laughs> she goes, yeah. yeah, we paid $1,500 for our, our league fee, and we go out to Laconia, and they were pretty good. I, I thought, <laughs> they, you know, they were a great game. I'm like, this is the best deal ever. Shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell my friends back in Philadelphia what a deal yeah. we got by coming here to play. I love that uh, story. You know? Yeah. And and I I I live in the same area. I'm like, yeah, we gotta play Waconia. That sucks. We yeah. out there. <laughs> it turns out that's not really a big bad deal to go out to Waconia. Yeah, well, we have. To, I mean, try sitting in stop traffic in the Garden State Parkway for an hour. Yeah, know, trying to get to Central New Jersey to play one game. <laughs> I used to have a client in Princeton, New Jersey. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> it's awful. Oh, man. This has been a lot of fun, Rich. I, we could talk for two, three hours. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, again, I, I don't do this much, but tell us where someone can get access to Pee Wee's Confession of a Hockey Parent. Well, it's, you know, of course, Amazon and independent booksellers, Barnes & Noble. It's you go on my website, which is called authorrichcohen.com. Yep. By the way, it's only called that because it was richcohen.com. And then a payment got missed. Just say that. <laughs> put it put it in the third person. Right. And, and then somebody came along and bought the name and then tried to sell it back to me. Oh, I've so had like, those happen before. Aren't they great? <laughs> yeah. So now it's just authorrichcohen.com, and that will link you to these places. So, And I'm sure local bookstores and and wherever, but it's, it should be widely available as of January 12th, which is Tuesday in the pod on our website. I'll put a picture of the, the book cover and a link to some spots where they can get to you and learn a little bit more about yourself as well. Appreciate your time uh, being on today's show. If you could just hang on one second while I read my sponsor reading and we'll get you off, get you out for the rest of the day. All right. Great. A huge uh, shout-out to uh, Rich for joining us today uh, and also our sponsor, The Minnesotan, an absolute gem of a store in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. It's like a museum of Minnesota sports and memorabilia as well as a great spot to pick up vintage hats, uh, shirts, pants, you name it, they got it, hoodies. Uh, of all different varieties. I love going in there because it's a, it's, a, it's a new visit each time. You don't go in there. It's the same old, same old. Check it out. Use YHH and get a 15% discount on a purchase online or go in store and use YHH when you check out. Huge shout out again to Rich for joining us today's show. Hope you liked it.